The talk you are about to hear is by Zen teacher Sensei Amala Wrightson. This recording is to replace the first part of the Taisho that was given on Tuesday the 28th of August 2018, uh, which didn't get recorded. This talk is a part of our Long Ancestral Line series, um, and this has, grew out of a response to a request earlier this year from people for more information about the different chants we do. And so we've been looking, we've started looking at the Long Ancestral Line. Long Ancestral Line is like, um, it's like our Dharma family tree. It starts off with um, some non-historical Buddhas and then Buddha Shakyamuni, Mahakashapa and Ananda, and then goes all the way up through all the um, Indian ancestors, the Chinese ancestors, the Japanese ancestors, finishing up with uh, Harada Roshi, Yasutani Roshi and uh, Roshi Philip Kaplan. And this, this um, line, this lineage, is um, one way in which we express a part of our founding myth, and that is this idea of, of an unbroken mind-to-mind -mind transmission of the truth from um, master to disciple, stretching from, uh, from the Buddha all the way up to the present. Um, we know now that from scholars that um, this, this lineage is, is got uh, gaps in it and um, or, or, or um, other places where um, different masters of the same time are bunched together. So it's a little bit uneven and, and also we know that it was invented much later. Um, this wasn't going with this idea of a, a lineage wasn't going from the beginning, but something that was that was projected back on the history of um, Buddhism. But it's still important. Our myth is an important myth that that informs our practice. Um, so it's good to understand and and have a sense of of what this is and where it's coming from. Uh, you could say that standing behind this uh, ancestral line uh, are these uh, famous statement that was attributed to Bodhidharma, uh, but again was actually probably written some some time after Bodhidharma later on. A special transmission outside the sutras, not dependent on words and letters, direct pointing to the human heart, realization of one's own nature, and becoming a Buddha. The text that we'll be drawing on, which is the Denko Roku, um, for each case, it captures the moment when um, the disciple becomes a Buddha, so to speak, realizes um, his enlightened nature. Um, this text, the Denko Roku, was compiled by Master Keizan, who was born in 1264 died in 1325. So he was three generations after Dogen and born uh, just a few years, let's see, like nine years after he died. Master Kazan is considered to be um, the second great founder of the, the Soto school in Japan. He's credited with, with beginning 
the spread of Soto Zen through Japan, he and his followers credited with this, what Master Dogen brought to Japan was um, still quite strictly within the Chinese style that he had um, been exposed to in China and also very much limited to um, one or two monastic uh, communities. And under, under Keizan, uh, Soto began to spread beyond these cloistered environments and became to be um, adopted uh, by the wider populace. That was the beginning of that process at any rate. Keizan uh, has an interesting biography, uh, just to touch on it a little bit. He spent the, the first eight years of his life being brought out by his grandmother, Miyochi, um, who was one of Dogen's for, first supporters in Japan after his return from China. And at one point, Keizan constructed a Kanon shrine, so a Bodhisattva of, of compassion, um, in, the mem in memory of his grandmother. And he also spoke very highly of his mother in his autobiography and, cons and considered to, to, to have been um, vital to his, his own um, training, her support really indispensable to his having um, uh, developed in the way that he did. And his mother later became an abbess and a teacher in her own right, um, while her son, Keizan, was to establish five monasteries for female monks. And again, at this time, this was pretty exceptional for, for there are examples throughout history of, um, of teachers who were more supportive of women, but they, they are the, really the exception rather than the rule. Keizan is also said to have um, established uh, five monasteries for female monks. It's something very unusual um, for his time. Um, so first let me just um, read our, our case and the verse that goes with it. So this is um, Denkoroku number seven, Michaka. Here's the case. Uh, Dritaka told Michaka, and Dritaka is the, the, the mask that we looked at last time, two weeks ago. Dritaka told Michaka, the Buddha said, to practice the supernatural or study the small is like being dragged by a rope. You should know for yourself that if you turn from the lesser streams and at once return to the great ocean, then you will surely attain realization of no birth. Hearing this, Michaka was enlightened. It's the case. And then the verse. Though we find clear waters ranging to the vast blue sky in autumn, 
How can it compare to the hazy moon on a spring night? Most people want to have it pure white, but sweep as you will, you cannot empty the mind. This verse is probably the most, the most well-known one in the, this whole collection. And it's very timely. It wasn't planned this way because I'm just working my way through the book. But these last couple of nights we have been uh, visited by the most beautiful, hazy, full moon of spring. Um, so, yeah, it's synchronicity, I guess, that we're, we're going to have a look at this koan tonight. So just a little bit about, about Michaka, this, um, disciple who, of uh, Dritaka. We, we um, already discussed Dritaka last time, so I won't go into any of his pretty meager biography. Not much, we don't much have much about him. But Michaka, we know that he was from central India. Master Kazan tells us that. And his distinction was that he was the leader of 8,000 wizards. <laughs> and he was a wizard himself. So, so um, the, the, the back story to our case, our exchange for tonight, is, um, is related by Master Kazan. So here's what he said. The master, this is referring to Michaka, was from central India and was the leader of 8,000 wizards. One day, while leading his followers, he respectfully paid reverence to Dritaka. He said, in former lives, we were both born in the Brahma heavens. So, um, The Brahma heavens, um, for our purposes, we don't have to go into the, the co all the cosmology behind this, but just say it's a very exalted plane of existence. It's where advanced spiritual aspirants go, uh, but it's still part, it's still seen as being part of the, the conditioned world. So um, one can be born into this realm, but then pass out of it. So um, if we, we could understand it as being, um, it's still part of the conditioned existence and, and whatever is conditioned ends. And so it's not, um, we might enter into a very exalted place in our meditation, for instance, and think that we've somehow arrived and yet it's a, not, a, not a permanent um, state. It comes and goes. And this is, this, uh, is relevant to to the whole koan, really. Um, as we'll see as we go on. So they meet in this, in this very rarefied heaven. And, or rather, rather, um, 
Michaka recalls this, and he says, I met the wizard at Asita and received the way of the wizard from him. You met a disciple of Buddhism who possessed the ten powers and learned to practice meditation. After that, our karmic paths separated. So they, they meet in this place, but then they have different encounters which take them in different directions. Uh, the former Dritaka meets a, a Buddhist teacher, and it says he possessed the ten powers. Um, and this is, this is again a contrast that we have in this text. We have the wizard who has certain kinds of powers, and then we have this Buddhist teacher who has what are called the ten powers. And um, they're not um, magical. Um, they don't have to do with manipulating things, uh, but to do more with insight. In, uh, in Sanskrit, these are called dasha bala. And um, here, here's what they are. Knowledge concerning what is possible and impossible in any situation. Knowledge concerning the ripening of deeds. Knowledge concerning the superior and inferior abilities of other beings. Knowledge concerning their tendencies. Knowledge concerning the manifold constituents of the world. Uh, concerning the paths leading to various realms of existence. Concerning the engendering of purity and impurity and so forth. So they're very much more to do with insight into um, nature of, of uh, where, where a human being's mind might be and what might be possible in any given moment, these, these kinds of things. Also states of deep meditation are mentioned. And um, knowledge concerning the exhaustion of all defilements. So um, kind of spiritual insights, powerful ones. So Michaka is is um, is in, influenced by the the wizard that he meets and and uh, Dritaka, his his future teacher, um, undertakes um, a different path, a path of uh, you could say spiritual cultivation. Uh, then it goes on, the story goes on. Um, Six eons have passed since we went our own ways. The venerable Dritaka said, so many eons apart, it is true, not a lie. Now you must abandon the false and come to the true and thus enter the Buddha vehicle. And Mejaka replied, in former times the wizard Asita made a prediction saying, after six eons, eons you will meet a fellow student and realize the fruit of pur purity. Isn't meeting you my destiny? I asked the priest to be compassionate now and liberate me. So, so his teacher of that distant part, time in the past had also made a prediction that they would meet. And so he's, this is a, kind of a recognition that he's experiencing. And it says six eons. An eon is a kalpa, so it's an immeasurably long time, an unimaginably long time. Um, uh, six world cycles, it means. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of standard definition of what a kalpa is or, or how big it is. Um, 
If you imagine a, um, a heavenly being coming down every hundred years and brushing the top of a, a one cubic mile um, piece of solid rock, so this huge piece of rock, you can imagine as a mountain, uh, somebody comes down and wipes it with a piece of silk once every hundred years. When the rock is worn away, you still haven't had a whole kalpa, a single kalpa. So an, an incredibly long time. These, these um, descriptions of long periods of time, kind of, um, I think the main aim is to kind of boggle the mind and get us out of our, uh, our little limited um, time frames. So this, the story continues. Um, so then the um, Master Dritaka gives Michaka the the precepts and um, ordains him as a monk. And then um, the other 8,000 wizards who um, are very, of course, very proud of their, their magical powers, um, something happens. Um, Dritaka is said to bring forth a different kind of power, again, um, more the power of um, Buddha power, you could say, something that just manifests effortlessly in him. And the wizards are moved by this, and, and they, their, their pride in their abilities sort of drops away. And it's said that in the story that they all arouse the, the mind of enlightenment. This is bodhicitta, the mind, um, the, the aspiration to awaken not just for our own um, ease of mind, so to speak, but in order to um, bring others with us, to liberate others. And so they all all become monks at this point. And then this massive um, sort of mass ordination having taken place is at this point, uh, after they've all become monks, that um, Driktaka speeches, speaks the words that are in our case, in our koan, the, the, the words that trigger um, Michaka's awakening. So what does he say? Let's have a look. He says, um, the Buddha said to practice the supernatural or study the small is like being dragged by a rope. That's the first part of what he says. So the supernatural here is is referring to the wizardry of these of Michaka and his eight thousand followers. So to practice this the supernatural is like being dragged by a rope, being bound, uh, not being free, and to study the small. What does that mean? Um, well, it it means. Um, any kind of belief system to take that up and not see beyond it, really. Wizardry is not probably something that is part of 
people's lives. So how can we interpret this now? Um, really, wizard, wizardry refers to um, something we human be beings can be very good at. I could say mastery of various uh, techniques and technologies. At the time um, that Kazan was writing this, um, there would have been uh, wizards in Japan, shamans, we could say. Uh, people skilled in the, in, the, in the manipulation or the regulation of, of mind-body energies, we could say. And these could be very, they can be very effective um, as, as healing devices. But Drikaka is saying, um, that's, you, um, go beyond that. These, these um, skills were not something that were, were ever denied by Buddhism, but they were seen as being limited. In the story, it says that the wizards can only see um, 80,000 uh, 80, eons into the past or into the future. So their, their vision doesn't go all the way, we could say. One of the um, commenters on this um, case, um, Lex Hickson, in his um, book Living Buddha Zen, he, he makes this comment about um, what Kazan, what, what um, Dridkaka is getting at. He says, um, in the narrow stream of psychic science, which investigates and manipulates the subtle characteristics of energy, one can perceive 80,000 eons in both directions, but fundamental questions are left unanswered. So um, the, the, the powers of magic are seen as being um, something that exists, but which we can get caught up and lose sight of the most, lose sight of the most um, important questions that there are to ask. Questions like, what about beyond those 80,000 eons? What is it that I can rely on? What can I put my real trust in? Who am I? And what is this reality in which I find myself? Or what is the cause of my suffering and how can I free myself from it and free others? While there, while there are not so many wizards around in our culture, um, an analogy for, for this, the same attitude, um, there, are many, there are many who um, people who put their faith in technology and uh, imagine that uh, it can solve all our problems. You know, at the time of of of, of Kazan or the Buddha, um, psychic science would have been a big thing. That's where the wizards uh, excelled. 
but today it's material science, manipulating um, the matter of our, and energy of our, of our um, physical world. There, there's a pretty strong school of thought that um, we should be able to, to fix climate change with, um, through, by means of technology shoot chemicals into the upper atmosphere or discover CO2 absorbing materials that could be created. And it's not that we shouldn't pursue these kinds of things, but it's really vital that we see that they're limited and that they, they, they always involve, um, or they, or they, um, they go in a certain pattern, and that pattern involves a, a human self acting upon uh, what is considered to be other, an environment, and that word is that word is revealing, as if the physical world were just some kind of background to our um, human activities. But I think most people would agree that what we need in terms of, of climate change is, is a much bigger shift, not just trying to manipulate our world into um, a different state, but a, a change in attitude, a change in attitude towards the earth and towards each other. And if we look at um, what technology, all the marvels that technology has produced, um, it hasn't led to, to um, justice or, or um, benefit, uh, equal benefit to all. Uh, Dritaka really is, is saying here that, that um, all kinds of, of magic and and acquired knowledge, they um, can just reinforce the bonds of the self. But then he offers an alternative to this. He says, you should know for yourself that if you turn from the lesser streams and at once return to the great ocean, then you will surely attain realization of no birth. No birth. Um, this is this is the same another word for the uh, what uh, Master Banke called the unborn Buddha mind. So he's he's um, regarding magic and uh, also spiritual techniques. We can s see these as being. Um, there in the, the study of the small. All kinds of acquired, acquired knowledge. And he contrasts um, this acquired knowledge, these lesser streams, with uh, a return to the great ocean. great ocean where everything is connected, 
where nothing, nothing is born, nothing dies. A completely different dimension of reality. Here's what Lex Hickson writes about this. What is the nature of this ocean of the unborn? If we imagine it to be empty of phenomena, we are being bound and dragged. Do not regard anything as false, illusory, or separate from essential mind. The unborn is right here. No one is ignorant of it, although she may claim ignorance. No one has knowledge of it, although he may claim knowledge. It manifests as skin, nerves, and spontaneous poems, waves rising and falling, leaving no marks. So it's not something that we can know, we can't grasp it. But then on the other hand, we can't not know it either because it is so absolutely intimate with us. It is our very flesh and bones and our ability to see and hear and taste and smell and touch. Master Huangbo says, um, all phenomena are intrinsically void, and yet this mind with which they are identical is no mere nothingness. By this I mean that it does exist, but in a way too marvelous for us to comprehend. It is an existence which is no existent existence, a non-existence which is existence. So this true void does in some way exist. Because we talk about and read about emptiness um, and, and think we know what it is, talk, it, is it means, but it's not nothing, because how could it be? We're talking about it. <laughs> There's something doing the talking or thinking. A little bit more from Les Hickson. The ocean of the unborn is always at play. This faceless consciousness is forever on the move, forever creating faces. It weaves clothes and grows food, but is never limited by any of these fluent manifestations. Awakening as this ocean of awakeness, we lack nothing and possess nothing. We simply are the golden peach, the delicate green bamboo, Every other meditation is trivial compared to this meditation beyond meditation. As Nagarjuna said, since all is empty, all is possible. So we're told that on, on hearing these words of Dritaka, Michaka was enlightened. 
could say in that moment that he he turned from the lesser streams and um, returned to the great ocean, <coughs> the great ocean of no birth and no death. Now let's just look a little bit at um, the verse. Though we find clear waters ranging to the vast blue sky in autumn, how can it compare with the hazy moon on a bright spring night? Most people want to have it pure white, but sweep as you will, you cannot empty the mind. Although we find clear waters ranging to the vast blue sky in autumn, Clear waters here, um, rising up and, and filling the sky. It seems in this image, um, we can we can see in these clear waters transparency, clarity. Um, everything is water. So here's an image of the great ocean rising up. Inundating everything. And the vast blue sky. Um, this, is, this is the view, you could say it's like the view from the top of a mountain. Nothing blocking the way of the view. So. <coughs> here in this first line. Um, Kazan is, is really expressing um, the aspect of form is emptiness, no thingness, everything equal, water, water experiencing water. But then he says, how can it compare with the hazy moon on a spring night? You could say the second image is is expressing the other side of the coin. Emptiness is form. A hazy moon, a, ha a moon that that you can't quite see fully, or see clearly. Hickson writes, uh, Master Kazan's closing poem this morning warns us not to misperceive the landscape of the unborn. It is not a clear autumn moon. It is not the beginning of winter hibernation. Leaves are not drying up and falling away to expose black limbs against cold sky. Unborn nature is the hazy moon of spring. Life is burgeoning. There is a cloud of tender new growth floating out about the trees. Mist veils the moon, concealing its form while revealing its most subtle light. Air is humid, soil is damp, dark and fragrant.
So Hickson here emphasizes the sense of of life, life unfolding, fertility, and we can also um, remind ourselves that um, fertility starts uh, in the dark earth. Not, not you don't grow crops on the top of the mountain. You grow them in the valleys, and on the on the uh, the slopes of those valleys. Another Zen teacher commenting on this. Um, this is Stefano Baragato. He says of this hazy moon. The hazy moon of Kazan is the state of imperfection. The state of living in the world as it is. Nirvana is not the pure moon where everything is perfect. The hazy moon is Nirvana. Nirvana is right here, right now, imperfect though it may be. Our attempts to achieve purity are not wisdom. The very attempt indicates wisdom is lacking. Purity is not the goal. The hazy moon or that which is shrouded in the normal everyday experience of living with imperfections is the goal. We need to accept ourselves as imperfect human beings. Enlightenment lives in our imperfections. Carl Jung emphasized that the goal, our goal is not perfection, but wholeness. Developing the ability to hold all uh, that arises in us as one. one more comment by another teacher, um, Susan Murphy. Talking here again about this, this whole question of um, seeking perfection. The verse ends that most people want to have it pure white, but sweep as you will, you cannot empty the mind. So she's commenting here on this line, most people want to have it pure white. We, we, we fantasize about perfection. As human beings, we're everything our consciousness can possibly include, wonderful and terrible. Sometimes I think the greatest danger on the planet is the unearthly human dream of perfection itself. Have a look around you, go back as far as you like in human history and have a look at how millions have died at the hands of the perfection plans of others and how many are dying of that right now even just in the name of somebody else's perfect lifestyle. How the planet itself is beginning to die from our toxic dream of a perfect life 
a perfectly easy and comfortable, technologized and disembodied life in which the troubling thorn of embodied being and its natural precariousness and tumultuous emotions can be extracted from human life and set aside. We, we so much want to um, arrive to, to find, a, find a place where we can um, be protected from all the uncertainties of life. We want things to be clear and unfold in a predictable ways. If we come to a Zen center, probably we want to be calm, we want to be centered, possibly enlightened, wise, These things don't need to be um, rejected, they bring us to the practice. But in a certain way they have to be let go of once we are practicing. And we have to see, we have to see our practice from um, a completely different perspective. We might think we come we come to practice um, in order to acquire wisdom or a skill. But what if it's, it's quite different from that? Maybe what if we um, it's because we're wise that we practice. That our that our practice is an in actual in actual fact an embodiment of our Buddha nature. We don't have to get something, acquire anything, rather just uncover that wisdom. Though we find clear waters ranging to the vast blue sky in autumn, how can it compare with the hazy moon on a spring night? Most people want to have it pure white, but sweep as you will, you cannot empty the mind. Things persist. The world is full of so much and all of the all that we experience is 
nothing other than our mind. As long as we're uh, caught up in a project, then we'll, we'll miss the, tr the insubstantiality of everything. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.